Croyoso, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 209, Public Protests. In British history, there are two distinct periods in the 1800s that most people remember. One was the Regency period, when George IV reigned while his father was incapacitated. The other was the Victorian period, where Britain became an empire that spanned the globe. Now, there were years that preceded and succeeded both of these. Those both stand out because of how much change happened during those periods, as well as how influential they were, not only on the culture of the United Kingdom, but one could argue the culture of the world. However, if I was to make a comparison, I would say that the Regency period had a lot in common with what we call the Gilded Age in the United States in the latter half of the 1800s. Both feel very similar as they're both marked by unfettered capitalism gone to extremes in an era after a major war when recovery and the desire for progress stood as the paramount achievement. They're not perfect comparisons, obviously, as they did happen during both countries' expansionist periods and during an era when change was happening from an agrarian to an industrial mindset and landscape. However, if we go back and focus in on the British experience, and specifically the Welsh experience, we're going to spend some time talking a lot about the larger aspects of the confrontation between labor and employers, and how shifting economic situations in Wales created fabulous wealth and crippling poverty, all in the name of progress. A couple of episodes ago, we mentioned that the Valley Public Strike of 1816 was a major stepping stone in a change between employers and the employed. But preceding it, there was change in the balance of how both the authorities and the public perceived labor and how much pressure was rising against those who represented the crown and its authority in various aspects. We mentioned that in 1790s and the early 1800s, there was a shift in population, one that would continue more or less unabated for the next two centuries. With it came further urbanization and industrialization, better health care, a number of improvements to lifestyle that made living longer and surviving childbirth much easier. However, at the same time, there was a slow retreat from the older lifestyles of the farmers and the small communal living that had existed in some form or fashion pretty much the entire existence of this place that we now call Wales, or Cymru. This feeling of need for something better, feeling abused by the system and a general sense that they did not care about you, was getting a lot of people talking, and as you can imagine, some of the more aggressive ones fed in part by alcohol or outrage, or both, would lead to further belligerence. Between 1793 and 1795, there were a number of riots in Swansea, Aberystwyth, Denby, Bangor, Bridgend, Fishguard, and Haverford West. Issues over taxes, food, impressing men to the Navy led to more and more anger and fighting. Things got bad enough that the army was called out to deal with these riots, before they could turn into actual revolts. However, one must keep in mind that these were not 
organized in a fashion similar to, say, a union walkout or even in a popular revolt fashion. These were much more catch-as-catch-can and very much squashed because of that. There was no real organization to them quite consistently. For some, fed up with all of this, they began to flee to the Americas, searching for a better place. This natural emigration became something that was fairly common over the next century, as both the newly formed United States and British North America, what would become Canada, would find a number of immigrants from Ireland, England, Wales, and Scotland moving in continual and increasing numbers throughout the 1800s. It would not be long before those migrations would include Australia and New Zealand and other British colonies scattered across the world. Conflicts were being created in part because of the changing times, the needs and demands of a nation at war, and in particular, a sense of separation which had continued to exist between the government and its people at a time when the size of the British Dominion was growing exponentially. Yes, they had lost America, but they continued to build colonies and finance wealth from places like India to Hawaii to Newfoundland, and all of the various colonies, islands, and territories in between. This was the beginning of the idea that the sun was never setting on the British Empire, and at its center sat a government that was barely coping with this continual and increasing change. Grain shortages, livestock prices falling through the floor, a lack of protection for Welsh farmers as post-war prices began to start to fall, built a level of frustration and anger in the public, which likely is why places like Merthyr were a tinderbox. Combined with this, prices of livestock remained at low numbers for almost 10 years after the final defeat of Napoleon. This was combined with inflation across many different categories, including things such as rents, food, and other goods. And because of these lowering costs in the agricultural field, there was movement into the cities to try and gain jobs, into the mining communities in the valleys, and in the shipbuilding areas in the south, all of which led to a glut of labor and reduced employment. Obviously, all of this feels very real to us today in an era where inflation has been high and demand has been high for goods as costs of living go up and wages do not keep pace with it. This, of course, created more and more poverty and the anger that went hand in hand with it. In industrial Wales, these same low wages, increasing inflation, and anger developed into popular protests against authority figures seen as profiteering in the circumstance. As inflation rose, labor wages stagnated or, in some cases, even reversed. Some watched their pay drop by as much as 40% compared to the years previous. So even if you were working, you were still incredibly poor and your entire livelihood was hanging by a dubious thread. Two other issues were a method of what was called long pay. Instead of paying someone on a weekly or bi-weekly payout, most workers were paid on a monthly basis. When you're living hand-to-mouth, trying to make what little you could meet, this was increasingly difficult. When you finally received your wages at the end of the month, for example, a company would then dock you rent, because of course quite typically the company owned the rental housing, 
Any equipment used or visits to the company doctor were also deducted, as well as a charitable donation to the sick worker fund that was, oh, by the way, mandatory. Then part of your pay, in quotes, came via goods from the company store. Whatever was then left over after that, likely not a lot, went for you to spend. This then meant that you were basically recycling your wages back into company profits. Between the rentals and the food stuff that they would have to buy from company locations, there was very little that didn't cycle back into the profit margins. All of this led to conflict, which obviously can be seen as pretty apparent. Since some company owned your accommodations and your supplies, they had basically locked you into their system and there were a few easy ways out of it. So you can imagine that authorities were not prepared to accept complaints or rebuttals, both in Westminster and in the local areas across Wales, as they viewed any protests or riot as the first sign of revolution. This was, of course, in an era of after the French and American revolutions, both of which were seen by the British government with horror and both seen as something that they would not allow and anything that even resembled it was seen as a scourge on the British life, and it had to be stamped out. The reasons to squash it may have changed after the end of the war, but they were no less reasons for officials to side with those who were powerless in economic and political ways, such as the poor laborer. Democratic radicals in this era were seen instead of being reformers, more as troublemakers and revolutionaries. You can almost imagine the rich MP and Lord sitting harumphing at the utter cheek of commoners expecting anything from them. We mentioned a bit about this 1816 strike in Merthyr previously, but what we did not discuss in any real depth was what led to it and why it was that troops were so close by and suspicious of anyone who even resembled the threat of a popular uprising. The company that initially created all this problem initially started it by announcing cuts in pay, which we'd mentioned earlier was a big issue. And this was met with mostly silence from the laborers initially, maybe some grumbling, but nothing surprising or specifically worrying. Yet, unnerved by something, Reverend William Powell at Abergavenny, the rector and magistrate for the community, called for the military to protect the town from what he suspected to be angry men. All, of course, was not well in the valleys, and the authorities knew it from the silence. Protests and strikes by miners in Tredegar led to a riot in Merthyr, which, as I said previously, led to 200 men being called up to act on the magistrate's behalf only to be routed by the mob who attacked anyone affiliated with the mine. By this point, the mob had grown from 1,000 to nearly 10,000, according to some of the numbers I've read, and an attempt by the military to defeat them led to little or nothing good. This mob then went about raiding and wrecking quite a number of places before they finally dissipated. However, that was not the end of the problem. Another mob very shortly after grew in Newport, and were eventually calmed down by the Duke of Beaufort and the sheriff who tried through stirring speeches and not too subtle threats to get the men to finally back off. 
Yet a tone had been set, and the radicals were finding purchase with their calls for better wages and fairer dealings for workers. Radical Henry Hunt, also referred to as Orator Hunt, reached Welsh miners as his speeches called for the radical reforms of the positions of labor and those that profited from it. He was a very heavily driven advocate for the people in these situations and calling for radical reform, everything from suffrage for women to changes to the way labor was treated, dealing with the poor. There was all sorts of things that he advocated for and would get himself in major trouble for many years later. However, in Wales, he was finding people who were starting to not only read what he was writing, but were willing to translate them from English to Welsh and spread that message to the Welsh miners who may not have understood it. Hunt was, of course, only one of many of these radicals, which we will discuss in future episodes, who were reaching the working poor of Wales and were finding themselves likely nodding along with much that was being written and represented. And of course, because of this, more trouble was coming, as everyone probably knew at this point. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. 
and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Fear of job loss and being debt-ridden, which of course would then mean prison to work off your debts and destitution for your family, would drive men to make very hard choices. This was, of course, the prisons or workhouses that Scrooge so willingly suggested that the poor should go to in a Christmas carol. In an industrial society, workers without protection were nothing more than another version of a machine, or, to be blunt, a slave. A wage slave, if you want to call them that. As the owners and authorities continued to put pressures on workers' groups, started to form within the minor communities, the iron workers and other industrial laborers, as they began to organize themselves. These secret groups began forming during the Napoleonic War to help create some plan on how to deal with abusive owners and those that supported them, who were seeking pay cuts for fellow employees. An English immigrant from South Wales named Ned was supposedly the first to set up a group called the Scotch Cattle. This group would be seen as the workers' defenders. They would use whatever means, fair or foul, to make the owners listen to their side and to enforce a level of commitment from other workers. The cattle tried to influence worker movements, strikes, protests, all throughout the 1810s, but it would take nearly a decade before they started to gain enough notoriety and enough importance in the communities to become influential. If strikes or riots failed to gain enough attention, they would then turn to threats, extortion, and arson, which were then used to force owners and the members of the community who were not upholding their views to meet the demands that they expected. Sometimes they would target, as I said, other workers, calling them traitors, cronies, and turncoats, likely for siding with these same owners. They would then turn to intimidation, attacking homes late at night, terrorizing the residents through breaking of doors, windows, smashing and burning furniture, shooting guns in the air, all while obscuring their appearance and setting out curses and threats to try and cow whomever they were targeting. Obviously, these gangs were organized, and as such, there was a hierarchy, and groups were called herds, and the person in charge was called the bull. Often, when they would lead their attacks, they would wear cattle skins, amongst other things, which would be blackened to hide their appearance, not unlike the balaclavas of modern-day thieves, at least in films. This was not the only method of hiding their appearance they used, as often these gangs or herds were from other communities. This way, I made them harder to identify because the locals wouldn't know them. Members of the herds would then wear disguises, and all these varied widely in quality, ranging from elaborate cowhide costumes on the one hand, to women's clothing or simply reversed jackets on the other. You kind of get the option if you understand what the Rebecca riots were, where some of this idea came from. 
most of the men involved in these attacks were generally in their mid to late 20s and therefore were very experienced and very healthy workers, I guess I could say. In other words, physically strong and quite willing to uh, use that strength. They would try to avoid physical violence unless resisted. But if they were resisted, they would assault their target with glee to get the message across. Because of the coordination and perceived protection they offered the working class, they were generally perceived in Wales as something to be lauded and something that was trying to help. Of course, the authorities had a much different viewpoint on this, and but because they were so popular, they were hard to find and hard to prosecute because, of course, they would be protected by the public. If you weren't the target and you perceived this as helping you, you were going to protect it. If you were the target, it would, of course, possibly cow you from trying to work against them. And so you can see how it has a very simple and elegant, if violent, way of bringing obedience and fear across communities. Now, because of this coordination and perceived protection that they offered the working classes of Wales, as I said, they were hardly going to get in trouble or found out. However, there could be occasions where that would change. It was something that would come about in part because guns were being brought to these attacks. And while they were seldom used in the actual attack, there was one incident where a miner's wife was killed during one of these assaults as she was shot. This was one of the rare times where the punishment was meted out, specifically to Edward Morgan, who was executed for the crime and two other herd members were jailed. Because of this event, the government took a much stronger hand and in the summer of 1834, against the groups that were trying to control the situation, the death of Morgan was seen in some communities as a martyrdom. However, there were strong suggestions that far from, if you'll pardon the pun, cowing the herd, it may be that it continued for over a decade after while the police, or in this case the authorities, were trying to enforce and control the situation. Enforcing justice in these situations was difficult. Few in the local community trusted or accepted the authorities, and their reliance on the military had come with its own set of problems, as they were not trusted and generally did not act in a manner that would create a belief that they were in the best interest of the public. Generally, the military was seen as and acted as heavy-handed at best and little better than armed riders themselves at other times. One of the driving issues was a lack of a police force. Justices of the peace were generally religious men who had some extra time to do the work needed and generally handle all the small petty bureaucracy and the smaller and petty crimes that went along with that. And they were as much of about organizing things as they were about actually fighting crime. They were also one of the few points of authority that could be targeted for intimidation. As you can imagine, it made the position very unenviable. The other authority figures in this situation were constables. First, 
led by a high constable who was typically a local wealthy landholder or could be as low down, if you want to call it that, as a high-level tradesman, they were then appointed to the position for around a minimum of one year. Mostly, they just did all those bureaucratic jobs that were needed done and then supervised others. They were a series, the others were a series of poorly paid regular constables who were elected to their positions to keep the peace and to break up problems before they happened. But frequently, these were not effective groups and were easily influenced. The constables, as you can imagine, were fairly unpopular, and that generally made their jobs even more difficult. They were really not strong enough even to deal with much above some drunken, disorderly pub night, and certainly were never going to deal with the rioting and the violence that was organized by the herd. As such, when real problems would happen, such as in Camarthen in 1831, they had to call up special constables from the local population to help deal with the issue. But in Camarthen, during this problem, 74 men actually refused the summons and were unwilling to serve, which, as you can imagine, makes it very hard to enforce anything. However, over time, these special constables would act almost as a paramilitary force, and as many as a thousand would be called up at times. Because of this, eventually, they were given more respect by the general public than the other parts of the law enforcement who were perceived as being either in the pockets of the companies or easily influenced and lazy in other people's opinions. However, this didn't mean that they were completely without ability. It just meant that the perception was not strong for them. A professional police force of the likes, which were now existing in London, had not yet been used in Wales and were not created for many years to come. Many of the times, policemen were brought in to help on cases. Usually these were made up of retired officers rather than actual active policemen. Either way, the herd, or Scotch cattle, became notorious and were well involved in most of the public protests that were happening well into the 1840s. Now, the name Scotch Cattle, like many of those who participated in it, is unknown to us now. There are guesses, there are some suppositions, but no one really knows why the name was used. Some have suggested that there was an idea that Scottish cows and cattle were more fierce and strong, and thus the reason why they use that term. Also, some have suggested that it might reflect the idea of stopping something, i.e. the ability of the authorities to actually enforce things, and thus the term scotching it. This all is pure speculation. We have no real clue. Like many secret societies, they generally like to keep their mysteries, and we really don't have any viewpoint other than perceptions of what went on, records from the authority figures themselves, and claims that were made to in the public about what was going on. Yet, their influence on Wales in the 1820s and especially the 1830s is undoubtable, 
and their role in later issues would definitely be something we will be talking about in the next couple of episodes. So thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can contact me as well on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Pod. And if you'd like to help with the funding of the research that I do for this series, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the week and take care, everybody. See you later. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.